This is Aaron Good, and you're listening to American Exception. Today's episode is a very special one to me. About a year ago, on Groundhog Day 2021, famed Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg joined my Peace Studies class. He came prepared to answer questions from students, which he did, but only after being surprised by a number of luminaries who had previously agreed to join us. The surprise guests included James Galbraith, Peter Kuznick, Catherine Gunn, and Peter Dale Scott. The class, Peace Studies of the American Century, is one that I developed in collaboration with filmmaker Oliver Stone and American University history professor Peter Kuznick. To prepare for Ellsberg's visit, my students read excerpts from his two memoirs, Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam in the Pentagon Papers, and The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. They also watched The Most Dangerous Man in America, Daniel Ellsberg in the Pentagon Papers, the Oscar-nominated documentary that Ed Snowden credited for inspiring his own act of whistleblowing. As you'll hear, each of the surprise guests shared anecdotes and insights about Daniel Ellsberg's life and his historical legacy. It also occurred to me that it might be good to add another voice for posterity's sake. Specifically, I'm talking about former CIA officer John Kiriakou, the heroic individual who went to jail for blowing the whistle on CIA torture. Without spoiling it, I'm glad that I reached out to my friend in this case, because John's Dan Ellsberg story is one that I think we'll all remember. Having said all that, enjoy the show. Peter is going to um, start us off. So Peter, uh, Peter Kuznick, you can take it. First, let me say thanks to Aaron. I was there at the moment of transformation when Aaron went from being Mr. Good to Dr. Good. And that was a, a, a wonderful moment, pre-COVID. Uh, Dan Ellsberg. Dan is one of my closest friends and really a, an inspiration. Uh, Dan, as you all know, is probably America's most prominent whistleblower. He's been an inspiration, not only to me, but to uh, Ed Snowden, to uh, Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning, to all of the prominent whistleblowers. I'm gonna let Catherine Gunn speak for herself. But uh, Dan has been not only an inspiration based on what he did, but he's been also a support team and a defense team. He's led the defense for participate in defense of many of the whistleblowers. So when John Kerry, former Secretary of State, presidential candidate, said that uh, Dan was a, a model and that, that Ed Snowden should follow Dan's example, and come back here and stand trial, Dan commented that Kerry's remarks were despicable because uh, Ed Snowden would not be able to stand trial, would not be able to defend himself given the nature of the Espionage Act. You can't make a public interest defense. So uh, Dan, in releasing the Pentagon Papers when he did, and he tried to get them out much earlier, as you know, 
Dan faced 115 years in prison. If you know Dan, it's hard to imagine Dan spending 115 years in prison. There are few people who love life, love freedom, love expression more than Dan Ellsberg. But Dan was willing to do that because he thought it might contribute to ending the Vietnam War. And it did. And it also contributed, we later found out, to bringing down the Nixon administration. But Dan came back to Vietnam with me. First time, uh, several years ago, I was bringing my students to Vietnam for an alternative spring break trip. And so I decided I was gonna invite Dan to come with us. And it was wonderful to see, because in Vietnam, the Vietnamese consider Dan to be an absolute hero. They appreciate his sacrifice. They appreciate what he did. And so we were treated wonderfully by the Vietnamese. Madam Bin came to speak to our group, chief negotiator. Uh, um, General Giap, I think at that point, General Giap was, maybe he was 100 years old or close to 100 years old, but he couldn't wait to express his gratitude to Dan either. And this is General Giap who defeated the French, defeated the Americans, and uh, is a true hero. Uh, so, but Dan is such a, so committed. For example, I organized the first teach-in after the start of the, the Iraq war. And Dan flew in from California to join us. We had, we had said it because we knew the war was co coming, the bombing was about to begin. And so uh, Dan flies in the night, the night before, and he calls me up from the, on his way back from the airport and said, Peter, why don't you come join me? Let's go to the Pentagon and get arrested. I said, Dan, we've got this big teaching tomorrow. It's gonna be on national television. It's gonna be the first one. We can't get arrested tonight. But he said, I have to, I have to go down there. So he goes down there gets arrested. He's the keynote speaker at this big, big national teaching. Fortunately, I got a lawyer to go down there at midnight and sprung Dan at three in the morning. So he was able to come to our teaching the next day. Uh, Dan and I share a lot of interests and a lot of concerns. Dan is the one of the few people I know who is obsessed with the threat of nuclear winter as I am. Dan thinks in terms of worst case scenarios, and he tries to preempt them, prevent them from happening. And the one that he and I obsess on, probably more than any other, is the danger of nuclear war, and especially the implications of nu nuclear winter and ending all life on the planet, or as Dan would say, all large, li large life forms on the planet. Um, Dan also helped me enormously in doing my project, The Untold History of the United States. When uh, Dan, when Oliver Stone and I would go out to California to do some of our lectures around untold history, I would always stay with Dan, and Dan would often come and speak with us. Uh, we did some uh, events in, at Stanford and other places in California, and Dan was always a supporter. He also saved me from innumerable errors in the chapters on the 1950s and 1960s and subsequent chapters. So Dan has been a mentor, a friend, a comrade, an inspiration, a role model. I love Dan and I'm very happy to be here 
with you and Dan today. Can I fill in, I think, for your students something that, that they should hear about that? First, it wasn't at the Pentagon. I got arrested with code pink in front of the White House in Lafayette Square. And they had the code pink people surrounded by police. And I sort of had to throw myself through some police and land in front of it because they were not letting anybody in or out. Got arrested with them. Well, it was an interesting arrest, which I, I won't go into the details now. But the reason I wanted to be arrested was that they were about to have shock and awe on Baghdad. And I really felt I'm an American citizen. The time for this is to be in jail protesting this, and I don't want to be watching on television this horrible scene of their bombarding Baghdad. And so we got arrested, and the other people, we were hogtied, actually, literally hogtied. It was one of the few times in a gym they had us, a whole lot of us, with our wrists shackled to our ankles. And I, I guessed and I'm pretty sure this was true, they were practicing for real terrorists, you know, for a big protest. Nobody had ever done this before. So I didn't cite out, and I was sent to uh, another jail. And actually, I told them at the time, and he said, why aren't you citing out? You know, just sign a thing and uh, give a fine or something, or say you'll appear later. And I said, I don't want to be watching what's going to happen in Iraq on television. He said, well, we're going to put you in a general cell with the television, where you'll see it anyway, he said, I'm joking or not. But actually, what they did was put me in a single cell in a distant jail somewhere. You'll, you'll see where I'm getting with this in a moment. The guy who was transporting me there, he said, couldn't you afford the fine? And I said, yeah, I could afford the fine, but I wanted to be in jail at this time. It was a place to be. And he said, well, where did you get an idea like that? I said, have you ever heard of someone named Thoreau? And he said, no. And I said, well, look it up. You know, there's this guy, Henry David Thoreau. And I told him a little, you know, when we're invading Mexico and we're having slaves and so forth, the place for an honest man to be is in jail protesting that. I don't think I told him all that. I just said, look him up. Put me in a cell, lying on the steel bunk, no mattress, without a pillow or anything. It's kind of hard, you know, the steel thing. They took my shoe off. They'd taken my shoelaces and my wallet and everything, my, my watch. So I remember putting a shoe under my head to try to lie there. I was thinking of that when I saw the uh, troops in the Capitol the other night, you know, lying on the, on the floor, the floor, and I was thinking, no pillow, where the hell? that's hard. Anyway, three in the morning, the guy comes and says, your lawyer is here. And he'd found me somehow. Thanks to Peter, I guess, that they checked the other jail. I was out on the street, just to tell you, because uh, he said, okay, you're free. You've been, you've been uh, sprung, something. I said, I don't have any money. I don't have any identification. Can I make a call? I was going to call Peter or call kind of No. I said, just on the office phone or you can let me, you know. Said, no. I said, you're just going to put me out on the street here? He said, yeah. And this may sound funny, but I said, would you, would you want your mother treated like this? And he said, my mother wouldn't get arrested. So I'm out on the street at three in the morning, alone in this in a neighborhood I didn't recognize at all. There's of course no taxis or no nothing, no, no phone. And it didn't look like an entirely safe neighborhood. So a car comes up and it's the lawyer. He's funny. So here is what I was driving at. I asked him, because he said, Peter had sprung me. Oh, I remember I was saying, I don't really want to. I want to be in here. He said, no, you've got to be here. You've got to be here for this teaching. 
So on the way, we stopped at a bookstore and I bought a copy of Civil Disobedience, Essay on Civil Disobedience. And I spent most of my talk to these students, and I don't know whether Peter was happy with this or not at all, because I really read a lot of the essay on disobeying civil authorities. I wanted to tell this to the students because that really does pay rereading many times, and it had big influence on me. I had my son read it before he helped me copy the Pentagon Papers when he was 13. Don't let him understand what I was doing. And I do feel that in the intervening 50 years or whatever it is, since the Pentagon Papers, I have been derelict in not talking as much as I should about the sources that influence me, namely Thoreau's Defying Civil Authority, Essay on Civil Disobedience, but in particular Gandhi, and an essay by, I want to say here now for the students, and I would hope they would write it down, Barbara Deming, D-E-M-I-N-G, called Revolution and Equilibrium, which again, I've read many times and, and had a major influence on me, that one argument about the need for nonviolence and the power of nonviolence. And Martin Luther King's Stride Toward Freedom, which I read at the same time, about his relation to the bus boycott, and a book on Gandhi called The Conquest of Violence by Joan Bondurant, B-O-N-D-U-R-A-N-T. And I sort of thought that talking about Gandhian things would sound something like a cult or too exotic, and I, I haven't told it as much as I should. So I'm happy to have the chance to tell your students that I would urge them to read these. James, if you could take it from here. Okay, thank you. First of all, I just want to thank you, Aaron, for doing this. And to me, it's really just a pleasure and an honor to be included on this occasion. And Aaron asked me to say a few words about Dan's historical significance. I think Peter's basically covered that. So I first of all, just want to say that, as I think you recognize, you're in the presence of a really extraordinary form of courage, actually two forms of courage. And I want to cover Peter Scott with this as well. One of them is the courage to stand up to authority for what you believe and what you know to be right, and to do so persistently over a long period of time. And the other one is the courage just to pursue the truth in a serious way and to do so with care and in a way which will leave a record for future generations about how this should be done. These are two exemplary human beings who exhibit both of those forms of courage to the very highest degree. Many people who have these traits are a little bit on the fanatic side, and that is also not the case here. We're talking about very, very reasonable uh, and serious people. So to me, as I say, it's an, it's an honor to be here. I do want to tell three short stories that relate to our engagement with Dan Ellsberg over the years. The first is that my father, who had served as Kennedy's ambassador to India in the early 1960s, came out to Los Angeles to testify for the defense in Dan's trial. And my understanding of his argument was basically that as ambassador, he had access to, to secret and top secret material. And when he held press conferences, he realized that no journalist would show up unless they thought there was a chance he was going to spill some of those secrets. So he gave the jury a little bit of instruction into what the true nature of the, of the secrecy system actually was from his personal experiences to elevate the status of the person who happens to hold the clearances. 
and that wasn't decisive at the trial. It was decisive was the misconduct of the government, but it appeared to at least have some effect and might have had some effect if the case had gone to the jury. Second story is a college story, because I was a sophomore in college in 1971, and I had a roommate who was a Lebanese-American bass player from Cleveland by the name of Joe Sa. And Joe had a signed job, which was working in was then a very high-technology operation, which was a Xerox shop on Massachusetts Avenue in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And one Sunday night in February, he came home to our quad and said, you know, some guy who said he was a history professor at MIT came in with a big box of documents and said he was writing a history of Vietnam, and he wanted five copies, and there were 7,000 pages of them, and they were all stamped top secret. And whenever Joe spotted my dad's name, or the name of one of our other roommates, whose father had been ambassador in Thailand, on the documents, he made an extra copy. And so we poured over 40 or 50 pages on four or five months before they were published on the front page of the New York Times. And when my dad called me to say I should get the Times, he said 7,000 pages of history. And I said, 7,000 pages? Oh, I've already seen those. So that's my second story. And my third story relates to this photograph, which has to do with a, the visit of a magician to my father's house in Cambridge around 2004. A magician encountered my then seven-year-old daughter, Eve, and proceeded to show off some of his wares with handkerchiefs and coins. At a given point, uh, she called him on a trick. I think it was a, he produced a quarter from behind his ear, and she, she, she named what it was. He said, now, how does a seven-year-old know a professional magician's term like that? And she said, I read a book. So I think they were kindred spirits. In any event, not only historical significance, not only courage, but pretty decent human being. I mean, a really decent human being. So I think we can all be really happy to be here today. That's all I've got. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you very much for that, James. Dan, did you have any, any response to, about uh, James and experience of having his father testify? Of course, his testimony was very helpful. McNamara, by the way, had refused to testify similarly. The key issue was, did this really endanger national security? And they knew it didn't. But McNamara said, I will hurt your client very badly if you compel me to be on the stand meaning he would say that it had hurt national security, I guess. But anyway, yeah, that, that story was amazing. I'd always assumed that when people made copies, that they would notice some of these stamps. They weren't all stamped top secret. We'd cut a lot of them off, but there was always some that we had missed because they were stamped on and they weren't all stamped at the top of the page. So anyway, as your father said, Jamie, to me about it later, he said, when I heard this was coming out, he said, I thought, you know, They'll have my cables from India, and I hope they're as good as I remember them. He said I was, he was afraid that his advice to Kennedy might not stand up every years as well as, as he remembered it in his head. But then he read it, and they did, so he was happy about that. He's been one of the ones who, from 61 on, had said, don't get into this. This is, you know, a total mess. I can't resist adding a slightly off-color story, which one of the letters that my father sent to Kennedy complained about the delivery of supersonic jets to Pakistan, which he said had been conducted with all of the discretion that one would associate with mass sodomy on the IRT at rush hours. And the IRT was the New York subway. 
when the book was going to galleys, I'm going to proofs. I, I read this back to him. He was at that point at a great age, stretched down on his bed. And he said, oh, yes, yeah. so I put that in so that he would keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was a great, he was a terrific writer, a terrific writer. Very jealous of him in the, in the economics department because he was the one economist who wrote gracefully. What advice you would have for Assange and uh, Assange supporters, which would include all of us? Well, I've been spending a lot of time in the last few months on this question of his extradition. I've been, it so happens, reading a lot about the process in the Times, the New York Times, when they were doing the Pentagon Papers. And of course, they were in the position Assange was in, as a matter of fact. Assange, again, put them in that position by sharing a lot of the material with the New York Times and others. And at the time, they were worried. There were dozens, a couple dozen people working on this at the New York Hilton may have committed a felony. Well, no one had ever been prosecuted for that before. And no one has since until Assange, that is, in the press business. Now, the wording of the Espionage Act that was used against me 18 U.S.C. 793, paragraph E in this case, for unauthorized, which I know very well because I was the first person ever prosecuted under that part of the Espionage Act. And it applies in the wording just as well to anybody who handles the material or who doesn't turn it in or who passes it to someone else, which was true of everyone in the New York Hilton operation. Now, they were worried about it. As I say, I, as a source, hadn't been prosecuted before. But since then, there have been more than a dozen people prosecuted, although the constitutionality of doing that with respect to a source has never been addressed in the Supreme Court. And it's very definitely challengeable under the First Amendment that that is too much of a restriction of freedom of the press. The point is that Assange is now prosecuted as the people in the New York Hilton all could have been and the publisher, and the editors. And now it's happening. And I've been warning news people, been warning news people for half a century now, that wording can be turned against you. And they were feeling safe because it hadn't been, and that seemed too blatant a violation of the First Amendment to do it, but not to Trump. And if Assange is extradited on these grounds, and the judge so far has ruled against it on personal grounds, on health grounds mainly. But if he is extradited on this and prosecuted in the current climate, especially in Alexandria court, he will almost certainly be convicted, and he will not be the last. So that it will be a crime then to, as the New York Times people had feared, to have any dealings with anything still stamped top secret or secret or confidential. And it will mean the public relies only on handouts. Put it this way, think of Fox News being the only news channel. It is the only news channel for the Trump followers and giving what they believe that the election was stolen and so forth. What should they do about it? They do believe it. Well, the effect of this would be you would get, as on Fox, what the president wants you to hear. That's it. And uh, no, and we have more wars like Vietnam and, and Afghanistan and Iraq. So it's very serious. A lot hangs on Assange not being extradited. And as someone who's 
met very friendly basis with Assange in London twice in the Ecuadorian embassy and, and with him earlier before he was under arrest. I personally hate to see him in the shape he was when I last saw him, and that was several years ago. And he, by all accounts, necessarily has deteriorated significantly then. He's, he's under conditions that the rapporteur of the UN regarded as torture or inhumane. I'm sure they would like him to die in the course of this. So I'm very anxious to see him get out. And I'm very glad that he does have as many supporters as he does. When I'm on symposia with this, there's a lot of listeners and uh, on Assange and a lot of people supporting him, which is very good. And a lot of newsmen and women who dissociate with him because uh, they don't like him. They don't realize, I think, the stakes for investigative journalism if he is not supported and he is convicted. Yeah, thank you. And I, I agree with you about the totalitarian implications of it and just this hope that out of nothing else but the desire to protect their own legitimacy, they will somehow let him be free, but that hasn't happened yet. So I, I think your advocacy for him is really admirable. Peter, Peter Dale Scott, I definitely want to hear from you. Yes, I, I, I'm bursting with things to speak. I want to praise Dan on two levels. We've talked mostly about his releasing the Pentagon Papers and how that uh, produced his being attacked for the first time under the Espionage Act. But the year in which the papers were published, 1971, if you look up the word whistleblower in the Oxford English Dictionary, you will see that the first recorded use they give of the word meaning what Dan did is 1971. And Dan has created, a, he has normalized an activity which has become really, in effect, part of the Constitution, because one of the church reforms after Watergate was the Inspector General's Act, and that has been strengthened three or four times since, and one of the protections is actually legally called the Whistleblower Protection Act. We now count on whistleblowers to help keep our government going in the right direction. The first impeachment of Trump was due to a whistleblower who was protected by an act which is recognizing the importance of what Dan did. And I've talked about Dan many times, and what I praised in the poem was his sitting on the railway tracks at a nuclear plant, Rocky Flats in Colorado. He was sitting there with a poet, Allen Ginsberg, because they wanted to block the train that was carrying materials out of that plant. And the important thing about that is that Dan and Alan didn't know that the train was going to stop. In other words, he was risking his life in the most literal way you can imagine. And that's what Dan got from his exposure to nonviolence. And I think that maybe 400 years from now, Dan may be remembered more for what he did to the history of nonviolent action in the world. I see this as a contest that goes back to the Old Testament between bottom-up power, what people can do, and top-down power, what the authorities are always doing, which is oppressing. And uh, I think that what Dan did 
you know, it inspired Brian Wilson to do the same thing out here a decade later at Port Chicago, and the train didn't stop. And Brian lost both his legs, his skull was open, people could see his brain. Why is that important? Because these are the things that change what people can do if they really want to change history is to risk their life. The Christian church was built what they called the, the, uh, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And we don't have many people who are willing to be martyrs. I may sound a bit old fashioned by talking about in this way, but I am totally engrossed now. I'm writing a book about it. The importance of the struggle in history as bottom-up power represented by Dan sitting on the tracks and top-down power represented by the people who arrested him and threw him out on the street at three in the morning. I didn't know that story uh, until today. That to me is the most important aspect. In the short run, Dan helping to stop the war, helping to overthrow Nixon, all of that of course is very important in the short run. But in the long run, strengthening the forces of nonviolence against the forces of violence, I think is the most important thing we can do with our lives. And so I just want to raise the conversation to that level of abstraction. What happens on a cultural level, these changes of the values that we think they're harder to talk about and to concretize. But Dan sitting on the railway tracks is a very visual embodiment of that. So I want to praise Dan for that. I'm so glad that I'm hearing this, that this is not a wake or a roast. It's wonderful to be able to hear tributes like this from your friends and people I admire and respect while I'm alive. <laughs> I didn't know this was going to be this. I thought it was just going to be students. But by the way, we haven't heard yet from someone here, in addition to Peter, who is definitely a hero of mine. And when it comes to whistleblowers, uh, she represents, I think, the single one who did it right in terms of putting out current information while there was still a chance to avoid a war. Putting it out after the war has started, or it's been going for years, as I did, is not very likely to have any effect. And indeed, when Catherine Gunn put out her information, it was before the war, and she had a real chance of stopping it because Blair had said that he would not actually help the U.S. invade Iraq without a second resolution from the U.N. Well, Catherine Gunn's revelations absolutely blocked, were uniquely responsible for blocking that second resolution and having the U.N. Security Council join the U.S. and Britain in aggression against Iraq. As a matter of fact, had they done so, it wouldn't be defined as aggression. But when they refrained from that, uh, from the authorization by the Security Council, it did define what the U.S. is doing as clearly a crime against the peace. Now, of course, Blair's desire to be next to the U.S. in whatever they did, like Trump supporters in his former cabinet now, and like the Republican Party right now, 
was willing to ignore his earlier pledge that he would need UN Security Council authorization to go in. So it didn't stop the war. It had a real chance to do so. And Catherine is the one, unlike any of the other whistleblowers I can think of, who at first view of this crime, starting as she put it, an illegal war by illegal means, attempting to blackmail members of the UN Security Council by listening to their private conversations. She acted expeditiously and in time. So if you ask what I've been trying to teach all this time, or somebody else asked me about Assange, what advice? Do it now. Just last month, I was very worried, very worried that Trump in his last throes here would start war with Iran. And he was really going that. And I was putting out uh, stuff that said, don't delay. If you have information that we're planning to provoke Iran into an action that will justify a full-scale war with Iran, don't do what I did. Don't wait till the bombs are falling or the war has started. And I could have said what Catherine Gunn did. And uh, unfortunately, not many people would have known that because the U.S. press very effectively blotted out the whole story of what she had done and the uh, legal proceedings and everything else. The New York Times simply didn't write a word of it at that time. Blotted out, so they don't know her name. So I had to put it, do what I wish I had done in 1964 or 1961 and put out this information. And fortunately, they didn't want at the last minute a discussion of the legality of the war in a courtroom. And uh, Catherine did not go to prison, as, as it looked likely that she would otherwise. But anyway, she is my example of timely whistleblowing. And I'm so glad she's here. Thank you, Diane. That was very sweet. Well, actually, I feel a little bit embarrassed because I didn't know anything about Dan <laughs> until way after my leak. In fact, after my case was dropped. I think. But it's almost exactly 20 years now since I started working at GCHQ. So it's to this month, 20 years to this month, I started working at GCHQ. And I had no idea. I mean, I hadn't even uh, heard of the term whistleblower. It was not something that I was familiar with. And it certainly wasn't something I ever thought of myself doing. But anyway, so when I did leak the information, I felt very much alone. I had nobody to talk to. I was trying to keep my head down. I didn't want people to know that it was me. And for eight months, I was bailed. So I wasn't charged for eight months. And I was basically trying to get on with my life as an anonymous person. And then they charged me in November 2003 for breaking the Official Secrets Act. And I was um, facing a prosecution. And it was at that point where I was charged that my name came out publicly. And that's when people in the US, like Dan Ellsberg, like Norman Solomon, like Peter Kutznick, and all the other progressive activists, anti-war activists, suddenly got wind of my name and what was happening and what I'd done prior to the invasion of Iraq. And then all of a sudden I got this flood of support, mainly from the US, principally from the US, mm -hmm. from 
people who read your news releases, your press releases and your articles, encouraging people to support me. And it was an enormous sort of um, morale boosting experience from going to feeling like nobody understood where I was coming from to suddenly getting literally hundreds of emails from American citizens all around the US. And after my case was dropped, I remember having an email discussion, I think it was with you, Dan, and you asked me if I had a computer, if I had a laptop or anything at home that I could communicate with. And this was in 2004, this is February, March, April, 2004, and I didn't have a computer. In fact, I was still going to the library to use the library computers or internet cafe to use the computers there. And I remember Dan saying to me, you must get yourself a computer and I will will send you some money so that you can go out and buy yourself a, a very good laptop so that you can start using it wherever you are. And that was the, my first ever laptop was courtesy of Dan Halsberg. Thank you very much. It was a very generous and kind donation. And it was the only computer that lasted us 10 years. None of my other laptops have lasted that long because I didn't know what I was doing. So I think I got conned and I ended up buying one of the most expensive laptops they had in the shop. But anyways, it was since then I had several meetings with Dan. We, I went to the US on a, a couple of occasions, met with Dan, met with people that I tend to call the usual suspects generally get together for these events, anti-war events and so on. And what was really special, I think, for both of us, I hope, was when the film came out two years ago, the film that was recounting my story, Official Secrets, and it was at the Castro Theatre where I first saw it in the US in San Francisco at the Castro Theatre. And we had a, a meeting in a bar just before we went to the theatre to watch the film and Dan was able to come and it was a great experience to actually, you know, have this thing that I never expected to happen to become a whistleblower. And then subsequently, you know, 19 or 17 years later for my story to be turned into a, a film. That was a special moment. I really, really am grateful that I was able to experience that. And I just want to thank you, Dan, for always being so supportive of all the people like myself and all the subsequent whistleblowers that have come, because it is a lonely experience when you feel as though you have nobody who understands where you're coming from and what you're going through. So thank you for all your hard work. And you're always such a great storyteller with fascinating stories to tell. And, you know, your beautiful smile always warms the cockles of my heart. So thank you very much. We are getting towards the end here of the class. And Dan, I hope that you are happily surprised that this was less of a Q&A and, and more of a tribute slash Q&A. 
I think my students have read uh, and, and we've discussed so much of your work that I felt like this Zoom business gave us a great opportunity to bring people together for something different that could capture something else rather than what is normally there in interviews. I don't have as many anecdotes about Dan as some of these people, but I have been very blessed to be able to spend time with him for the better part of a week in Philadelphia, driving him around and uh, hosting some events, hosting a George School event and attending an event at Swarthmore with him. And then later driving around San Francisco area with Dan and Peter when we did some interviews a few years ago, which for me was really wonderful because I had known these men much more than they knew me because of the internet. And after I became more radicalized after the Obama campaign I worked on, and Obama turned into more of another imperialist, and it radicalized me. And so I just started reading and, and listening to all of these interviews of people. And so I'd listen to hours and hours and hours of Dan talking and Peter, Peter Dell Scott talking. So it was a real thrill to meet Dan. And when we were at Swarthmore, Dan was giving a, a talk to a packed auditorium, and I'd given him my paper the night before, and Dan gave me the nicest compliment and shout out and mention during this talk, which was kind of gratuitous and yet so generous, I thought. And I think that's really emblematic of the other stories that people shared about him, his generosity of spirit. But also, he delivered the nicest and most precise zinger that night of sorts. I, I don't exactly want to call it a zinger, but it was in that family. And there was a person we were talking to at the table who was a retired Swarthmore professor, and he'd worked with Samuel Huntington. And I was still in graduate school, so I was complaining about Samuel Huntington and saying that I disagreed with everything he wrote in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And it was remarkable how his imprint and this other fellow who was more in line with us, but defended Huntington out of some loyalty in some ways. And then Dan finally at the end of this says, well, can I ask you this? Was Sam Huntington ever right about anything? And this fellow, it wasn't offensive because he wasn't exactly trying to argue his perspective, but it actually caused a transition to another subject because he had no response. And I felt it was, he needed to tell the truth, but he did it in the nicest way that he could. And it was really memorable. Aaron, can I add a couple things? Of course. First, on Sam Huntington. Huntington was right once. He said the West won the world, not by the superiority of its ideas or values or religion, but by the superior application of organized violence. Westerners often forget that fact. Non-Westerners never do. So I think that was the one time he got it right. Peter, that illustrates, I think you and, and other Peter have heard me say in recent times, a, a postulate of mine at 89, you can't rely on anyone to be wrong about everything all the time. And you've just illustrated that. As, as Aaron was talking about Sam Huntington, it came into my head that Huntington was an exception to that. So you can't set your compass entirely by any person. You have to keep your ears open. And, I give credit when somebody's right. Even when Trump said, why can't we be friendly with Russia? All right. Yeah, why not? And for whatever his motives were for, for his strange uh, appreciation of Putin and Russia, I preferred that than going to war. So uh, you've got to be open to the possibility that anyone you know as an almost perfect 
compass toward the wrong direction uh, might possibly, if you hear them being right, it might be, it might be the case. And Peter has just demonstrated that. I've got one more story for the students that they might, you might appreciate that it isn't all pain and suffering. Dan is the only person I know who three of the four Beatles lined up to get Dan's autograph. And I think, I'm not, I could be wrong on this, but I think it was at a reception for Dan thrown by Barbara Streisand. It was a fundraiser for our trial. It happened to be on my birthday, April 7th, which raised enough money to keep the trial going, which was out of money at that point. And literally, the uh, trial would have ended, and it would have ended before the word of the fielding break-in got to the courthouse, which brought Nixon down eventually. Had the trial ended earlier, which we all would have been we were ready to go, but without this extra money, it Barbara Streisand raised at this particular party, which, as you say, had Beatles and other people in it, he would have stayed in office, and the war would have continued until 77, at least, and his successor, I think, would not have stopped the bombing in support of our puppet troops in Vietnam. Could have gone on for a long time. We have now learned how long Americans will put up with spending American money to kill other people from the air. 19 years in Afghanistan and about the same in Iraq. In other words, if a president can get a war where he only involved air power and hardly any casualties, American casualties, the American people will accept that, that imperial role. In other words, we have an imperial public to a large extent, and it's not only the people who listen to Fox News. That's what I think Catherine recognized when she thought this is basically imperial in the worst way, you know, in the, in the case of Iraq, as it was, and uh, she acted against it. And of course, Peter, both Peters here, Peter Dale Scott and Peter Cousin, have done a, more than anyone else I can think of to enlighten the world, along with Noam Chomsky and a few others, and Jamie Galbraith, right here, to try to make people recognize that we are what I call a covert empire, covert in the sense of plausible denial of what we are and what we're doing and the means we use. And uh, it's uh, people are in that state of denial very successfully. The words regime change now are used as though it's a perfectly normal activity of the government to decide who shall govern somebody else, who shall die, who shall go into prison. We have a right to decide if we don't like them. So you see regime change now, which is the definition of empire, virtually a believed right and ability to determine the governments of other countries. It just is accepted now. But anyway, we have to change. And of course, simply moving Trump for Biden does not change that, doesn't change the defense budget or our intervention policy or whatnot. But to think that that means and there's no change, as some people do, is that's, that's absurd on the domestic side and on climate and on other things on the pandemic. But in terms of changing our role of, as Martin Luther King said, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world in the pursuit of covert empire. That remains, and we have to change that. So thank you for this. This has been wonderful, Aaron. 
I think that we can leave it at there. I think that your words about the empire were a great way to wrap it up and reiterate the main thing that we're living under and that you've done so much work to expose and continue to inspire people with your example and your erudition and your humanity. So I'm so thankful that you came here today and everyone else that joined us. Thank you all again, and especially you, Dan. And Peter, Peter and Jamie and the students, but I, I look forward to seeing the students again. I have my friends here is really heartwarming. That's wonderful. John Cariaki, thank you for joining us here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you've uh, been able to learn a lot about Dan Ellsberg in your career. Before you famously became a whistleblower yourself, what were your impressions of Dan Ellsberg uh, as, a, as a whistleblower and as a former national security guy, considering that he, what he did had to be something that they didn't encourage people like you to do back in your former <laughs> profession? No, they, they don't encourage that at all. I've told Dan um, that uh, when I was a little kid, uh, we actually talked about him in our house. I was six years old when Dan released the Pentagon Papers. And my parents were very politically aware, if not politically active, in western Pennsylvania where I grew up. And every day we would have dinner together, as most families did. And um, and they would talk about what was in the news. And I remember very distinctly when Dan released the Pentagon Papers and my parents talking about how important it was and what a great service he had done. And I told Dan back in 2015, even as a little kid, he was a hero in our household. Uh, I, I didn't have sort of the normal CIA experience, as you might uh, imagine. And um, even though I felt like I was doing the right thing at the CIA and, you know, I was there to serve my country and to be honest and, you know, support the Constitution and all that, all that stuff that they, you know, get you to swear to, um, I always placed Dan and what he did above so much of what I saw my colleagues uh, doing uh, there. That's why there was never any question for me about doing the right thing. And then, you know, when I got in trouble, I was, I was awaiting trial and um, uh, a friend of mine, Jane Hampshire, she was the, the editor of, uh, of a website that became shadowproof.com. It was called fire dog Lake. She had a dinner at her house and she invited Tom Drake and Jesslyn Radak and Kevin Gastala and Daniel Ho and a couple of other people. And, and, um, Dan called in and, um, he, he called in to wish me luck and just to be able to speak to the great Dan Ellsberg. I mean, as depressed as I was, and there were FBI agents in, in two cars sitting in front of the house. One followed me home. One followed Tom Drake home. It didn't matter to me because that night I got to meet the great Dan Ellsberg. And uh, it was it was a thrill that I'll never forget. You know, even today, it, when when Dan and I run into each other, it's always a big hug and a and a handshake and how are you doing and let's sit together. And I I, 
I can't believe that I'm friends with Daniel Ellsberg. He's such a giant in American history, somebody that I always aspired to be like. And um, having him as a friend is is something that I'll always cherish. Yeah, I, I um, have been fortunate for a number of connections to be able to spend time with him. And um, he he called me up after I sent him and Peter Dell Scott because they're best friends, which is amazing. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and he called me up after reading a section of my new book on the creation of the national security state. Wow. Because he'd given me a source in our conversations about a book about a war scare that preceded NSC 68. And so I decided, well, I'm going to, I need to reach out to him again and say, Hey, what was that book? And then I said, okay, well, since you're interested in this subject, obviously I'll send you this draft. And I figured that would be it. Then he, he calls me um, a few days later and we talk on the phone for like 40 minutes wow. and he, he is in his nineties and yep. still can recall all these other sources that I could look at and uh, had feedback and gave me some uh, encouragement about all this. So he's, this is something that he, he does with himself and with his time, even at this age, it's really, he's really an inspiration. He really is. And I'll tell you a funny story too. In uh, 2000, I think it was 16, I won the Penn USA first amendment award. And, um, the ceremony was held at the Beverly Hilton hotel in uh, Beverly Hills. And it was a big deal as you might Imagine it, it, it. This is one of the big four literary awards: the the Penn First Amendment, the Penn Faulkner, the Pulitzer, and the Edgar Allan Poe. And so there were a lot of important people there. And um, Dan was sitting at my table because he was there to accept a, an award on behalf of Ed Snowden. And then Francis Ford Coppola was there to get the Lifetime Achievement Award. And it was exciting. You know, there's like a red carpet with the backdrop and People Magazine is there and Variety and The Hollywood Reporter and and all these, these industry people. So Dan got up to accept the award for Snowden and he gave a very fiery speech. It was It was about our civil liberties. It was about how the Obama administration had turned its back on the Constitution. It was really a powerful, memorable speech. And then I got up to give my speech. And they had told me several times before speaking that I had to keep it to seven minutes. I couldn't go beyond seven minutes. And I normally don't practice speeches. I just wing it because I feel like I know my issue so well I don't really need to practice. This I practiced for weeks. And so I had it to exactly seven minutes. So I got up immediately after Dan and I gave my speech and it was pretty darn fiery too. And so Francis Ford Coppola gets up to give his speech and the showrunner from some show on HBO introduced him and Coppola goes up there and he reaches into his breast pocket and he pulls out his speech, which is folded up. And he said, I came here tonight intending to talk about my search for the human soul in my films. And then he throws the speech down onto the lectern and he says, but I am sick and tired of hearing people criticize my president. And 
everybody thought it was a joke. He was joking. And so people are laughing and whistling and clapping. And he says, where's the CIA guy? And I said, right here. And he points at me and he says, you're probably a nice guy, but I don't want you criticizing my president. And then he starts talking about Dan and how Dan doesn't understand the need that to keep some things secret. Some things should remain secret. Well, Dan has hearing aids. He's a little bit hard of hearing because of his age. And he leans over and he says, what's he saying? And I said, he's insulting us, Dan. He's what? I said, he's insulting us. And Dan stands up and he shouts, fuck you, Coppola. And Coppola looks at us and says, I've said all I need to say. I'm not saying any more. And he walks off the stage. Well, by then people realize this is no joke. And so the MC comes back out. She was one of these people from Saturday Night Live. And all she said was, and on that note, drive safely, everyone. And they turned the lights on. The organizers of the event ran to Dan, not to Coppola. They ran to Dan to apologize for Coppola's disgraceful behavior. And then one of them turned to me and said, I'm so sorry that happened. And I said, listen, I've been insulted by people far more important than Francis Ford Coppola. But Dan was the one that they ran to to apologize because Dan's a giant, because Dan has has provided a great historical service to the American people. And even those Hollywood people recognized that Dan was the one that was deserving of an apology that night. That that's amazing. I can't believe that Coppola is is such an idiot. Total idiot. I, and then you know the funny thing is, the next day there was nothing in the press. And then the day after that, there were these references to Francis Ford Coppola going off script to discuss politics. So what it was was he had immediately called his PR people and told them he lost his temper. Kill the story. Yeah, he must have. But, but that's – they should have had at least an account of it. The Obama messed with people's brains. Yeah, he did. To this day. Yeah. It's insane when you think about it because we demonize Russia all the time, right? Yes. Oh, Putin's a bad guy. Even if you're um, not on the – even if you're anti-U.S. imperialism – People feel the need to like do some sort of ritual Catholic crossing and say, oh, yes, he's very, very bad. Putin is very, very bad. Mm -hmm. But like think about Libya. Mm -hmm. Has Russia under Putin ever done anything that criminal no. and, you know, uh, just morally abhorrent and evil? You could you could argue that an earlier generation of Soviets, you know, committed crimes in Afghanistan. But we do that kind of thing all the time. I mean, you can point to any of the four corners of the globe and uh, and show where we've overthrown democratically elected governments. We've violated human rights and civil rights and civil liberties, and we've propped up dictators and monsters. And we do that kind of thing all the time. Oh, it's good that you and Dan, I mean, obviously you for very real, real world reasons, but that 
you know, that there are people that didn't fall for that. I, yeah. I worked for Obama, for, so I fell for it for a while. But I quickly realized, with really with Honduras, yes, that that yes, the new boss was the same as the old boss. But somebody like Coppola is is an artist. He writes about the mob. Some of his the mob in his in the Godfather. He shows some of the connections between the establishment and the mafia and organized crime. That's right. So he is aware on some level about. American power and its relationship to the underworld, et cetera, et cetera. So how, how is he this clueless? Yeah, the horrors of war he addressed intimately in uh, Apocalypse Now. I mean, it's not like the guy's totally bought into uh, the system, I thought. But, you know, I was, I was proven wrong. At least with Obama, he, he bought it hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd like to um, chalk it up to dementia or something. I think Dan's... Fuck Coppola. Fuck you, Coppola. It needed to be said. <laughs> and that that makes me like Dan even more. I, the I guy wasn't is, expecting is to come out of this interview saying that. He's he's my hero. And and to see him stand up like that and just, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not gonna take this anymore. It was one of those kinds of moments. I was proud yeah. to be with him. Yep. That's spectacular. Well, Thank you very much Thank for you. joining us and sharing your uh, memories and impressions of, of the great Dan Ellsberg. Uh, this is great, and I hope that we can do some more things in the future. Looking forward to that. Thank you. I was able to follow up with a couple of the participants after this event. Said Professor Galbraith, Dan Ellsberg is one of the most distinguished citizens of our republic or of any republic. He's also a very decent human being, and it was a pleasure to be there with him for a few minutes. Peter Dale Scott also offered his thoughts later, saying, It was a great event today. Good to see Dan smiling and memorable to see, and above all here, Catherine Gunn. Ellsberg also took questions from the students and offered his insights on subjects like civil disobedience, the Assange case, and his tragically doomed plans to serve as point man for Vietnam in a Robert Kennedy presidential administration. Commenting on the January 6th spectacle, Ellsberg stressed the need to better educate the American public to protect democracy in the long run. Daniel Ellsberg is a national treasure. His sacrifices for a better world should be studied and analyzed by everyone committed to peace, justice, and truth. He also has tremendous energy and generosity of spirit. This is the third event that Dan has done with me and my students. As a teacher, I can't imagine a better way for students to learn about these subjects. There may be no living historical figure whose life better embodies values regarding peace and the sanctity of human life. It's my hope that the footage of this event can educate and inspire others far beyond the virtual classroom where it happened. A small confession here. I was so heartened and amused by John Kiriakou's story that I almost titled this episode, Fuck You, Coppola, a tribute to Daniel Ellsberg. In the end, I bowed in the direction of those better angels toward which Dan and friends have led us. So that's just a footnote, I suppose. I want to thank Anthony Fest and Dana Chavaria for the audio engineering, Casey Moore for the episode artwork, and Mock Orange for the music. That about wraps it up, friends. Let's follow Dan's example and keep bringing the light.